Welcome back to Pneumatic Materials. You're listening to episode three. My name is Nate. This is Derek. Um, today, uh, we're talking about a book by Tara Isabel Burden entitled Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World that was published in 2020. Um, this is a broad overview um, of the contemporary religious landscape that uh, is interesting. Um, we definitely have some some criticism and uh, points to make about it, but um, one uh, reference point that the author makes use of pretty frequently throughout this book is Emil Durkheim, um, the renowned sociologist, definition of religion. Uh, so I thought I'd just give that here at the top of the show um, for people who aren't familiar. Uh, he defines religion as, quote, a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things. That is to say, things set apart and forbidden. Beliefs and practices which unite in one single moral community called the church, all those who adhere to them. And with that, let's get into our discussion. Today, um, we are discussing uh, Tara Isabel Burton's broad overview of contemporary religious practice, Strange Rites, published in 2020. Um, I came across this book initially on Discord, I think in 2021, um, was when it first popped up on my radar. Um, but my kind of my immediate sense of the book, um, just doing a little cursory research online, was that it was a pretty well regarded, um, broad mass market overview of um, contemporary uh, spiritual and religious practice. Um, you know, we'll get into this as the conversation moves forward, but it looks into um, witch talk. Uh, soul cycle as a quasi cult. Um, and it does do a decent job of laying out um, the landscape to some extent and, and getting into um, some interesting detail about um, how Americans are filling their spiritual lives in an era of declining faith in institutions. Um, not only institutional uh, religious structures, but you know political um, institutions as well. Um, but in reading it, um, I was frustrated because it does do some things very well. Um, I think particularly the section on Soul Cycle um, had some some fun pull quotes um, that we're going to get into. Um, but its limitations uh, became very apparent to me, and I think. That made it stick out in my mind. Interesting. Uh, well, I picked this up at your suggestion, Nate, and I will say that I feel similarly vexed uh, by some missing points of analysis in the book. But like you said, it's like a Times bestseller. Uh, it's a contemporary reference point. I've seen other people reference this as well as some way to try to navigate 
something, categories mm-hmm. and boxes and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's get into it. Yeah. So I think we're going to start out um, with a kind of broad overview of the structure of the book um, and then try to move into more specific points of critique. Um, our points of critique might um, enter into the, the, uh, the overview. I'm not going to try to adhere to a super strict uh, structure. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really feel like that kind of show to me. But um, let's see. She opens the book with an exploration of the interactive play Sleep No More. Now, I was not in New York when this thing was really going on. Um, but Derek, I know you were. Oh, yeah. So maybe you could tell our audience what Sleep No More uh, was all about. What was Sleep No More all about? Um, you know, I feel like most people probably have some sort of a, an idea of this. It was pretty, I, mean, I think that concept traveled probably around the country as well. But New media, mixed media, interactive, live, performative, uh, experiential event mm-hmm. in which people would pay to go to, I guess, essentially like an, a large warehouse with lots of props, multiple narratives. I've heard them called Shakespearean. I don't know mm-hmm. if I agree. Yeah, I think it's it's based on yeah, Macbeth. I, I, right. I think the initial iteration was it's probably about oh, other yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah. And whenever you go there with eight people and you end up getting divided by people wearing funny masks with long noses, uh, you experience some sort of live performative thing. I think at the time people enjoyed it because it was, quote, like being in the movie mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of watching the movie. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Tara uses Sleep No More as a, an introductory example of a phenomenon that, while not religious in a traditional sense, filled that role um, for a lot of people. Uh, I, just, I think yeah. it's, it's uh, to be a little more, I think it's po- like a post-Burning Man. Okay. Like corporate mm. experiential kind of thing, mm. you know? I mean, people might not like putting the corporate label on it, but it just reminds me of a lot of the things that have come out of these ideas of temporary zones of autonomy. What, what can we do with, you know, in a piece of empty real estate in New York that we're trying to sell? How do we show what you know? We bring the arts to these venues to eventually flip them into whatever. But some, I guess it's a more cynical uh, New Yorker take on the Yeah, world, so. and I don't want to say that the initial conception of you know, or to say that all um, modes of interactivity in um, you know in drama are are necessarily bankrupt. No, but I, I, it's just something became, for me with experiential mm-hmm. and the empty venues that these are in and the purposes that they serve after. I guess I look yeah. at the marketing trajectory of yeah. these things. And then but like for, for the purposes of this book, I mean, she, um, she goes over people who would spend thousands of dollars kind of going again and again, um, developing relationships with specific actors, um, treating this as a, as a, a space of, you know, almost weekly return, um, reverence and, and reverence. Um, so it's very easy to see. Um, and I think Tara does a, a good job of laying out how, um, this phenomenon, um, fills the role that religious practice may have filled for, for other people, um, you know, 50 to hundred years ago or going back. So, so that's kind of, she, she opens the book with a case study, um, using this, um, interactive theater experience of sleep no more. Um, but then she moves on to to really lay out her terms 
um, that she kind of refers to uh, through the rest of the book. The, the biggest one is the religiously remixed. And by this, she um, is very broadly referring to people who may identify with a specific faith but don't really practice and have other contradictory beliefs. Um, you know, like someone who may still identify as a Lutheran but also practices astrology. Um, she also identifies the category of the spiritual but not religious. Um, she takes polling data um, and extrapolates from there these static categories um, that are essentially heuristic devices to make her argument. Um, the poll, I, you know, asked question, I, I think it was, it, it's concerned with, um, asking people how they identify religiously. Do they, you know, do they practice, uh, a given religion? Do they identify? And so you kind of end up with these four or five groups, um, that break down, um, you know, a, according to the lines of this polling. Um, but I think this kind of gets to one of the things that, uh, frustrated me with, um, with this book, and it's certainly not unique to to Tara's book here, um, but it, it seems kind of endemic to a kind of journalistic writing and um, mass market overview of social phenomenon, which is an over-reliance on these categories created by polls. You know, and polls are created by biased individuals. They lead people into identifying with certain categories based on, you know, these divisions that are created by the pollster. Um, and then based on people's answers, you know, you, you get this kind of breakdown of how people respond to a poll. And then you take these categories, these identities that you've created, and you start to forecast and you start to make judgments based on these rather reductive categories um, that, that you formulate. So I would not say that it's not important to try to get a sense of, well, how many people may still, you know, um, cling to a label of a, you know, of a traditional religion, but also kind of practice the, I, I think it's, it's perfectly acceptable to explore that phenomenon. And, you know, maybe in the broadest sense, having a kind of sense of how that breaks down percentage wise, I don't know, is interesting, but there's an overemphasis on the, I don't know, the validity and the kind of, maybe not a historicity, but the idea that like these are kind of immutable categories that Tara will continue to refer to um, throughout the book. So she lays out her terms. She refers to the sociologist Emile Durkheim to lay out a kind of de definition of religious practice um, that would include a lot of these practices, mm. like, you know, the practice of astrology, of a lot of kind of new age um, religion, but also soul cycle, also Harry Potter, Star Wars, fandoms, Marvel. I, I'm not sure she refers to Marvel specifically, but the broader phenomenon. Like Disney of, and Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So essentially she does uh, refer to to Marvel. And, and again, when she's kind of laying out, you know, like these are, these are the new gods of America, you know, it's Iron Man and baby Yoda and your soul cycle instructor, like 
I, I agree um, that these phenomenon have replaced a lot of like religious engagement. Um, but the critique only extends so far. It's not much of a critique as like a matter of fact statement mm-hmm. that I feel, I mean, you know, within, within critical theory has been a talking point for over a hundred years and, you know, maybe outside of it in the mass market circles that you're talking about, it's, I feel like this is like a, a talking point that is in typical television shows now mm-hmm. as well. You know, it's, it's, I mean, tor- towards the end of the book, she does actually reference Neil Gaiman's American gods. I think, I imagine that was actually a foundational text for this research. And at times it did feel that it was like working towards confirming previously held beliefs. I mean, sections that are just breaking down people who believe in God, people who believe in the Judeo-Abrahamic God, people who believe in some other version of God. Like, it's just percentage, 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 percentage compared to 10 years ago. I just, you know, what is one supposed to conclude from that? You know, as soon as this data is published and then it's moved upstream into this kind of a book and then this book is sold, I feel like all of that has become irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So it's better to look at the... I mean, because she even mentions acceleration and speed in this book too. And with that acceleration comes the turning over and the shifting uh, geometry of these ideologies and the new ones that take their places. So I don't know, maybe there's a more endemic way to look at this. But like you said, there's no conclusive analysis, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, there is a, I I mean, one of the biggest um, critiques that Derek, you and I both share of this book, and I think we're going to come back to it a lot, is that it sets itself out as a kind of analysis of uh, spirituality and maybe culture more broadly. Um, And it does try to ground itself historically. Um, the, The next chapter after the introduction kind of lays out a broad history of um, what Tara terms intuitional religions in America, um, this kind of preference for an individual um, intense relationship with God that you see in, you know, become very popular in the first great awakening of the, I believe, late 1700s and the second great awakening of, uh, I don't know, early to mid 1800s. It's, ex- right? it's experiential, right? It's, yeah. felt, it's like a key part of it. It's supposed yeah. to be something that you intuit, yeah. that your gut leads you to. So in, in her definition, which is borrowing a lot from Durkheim. It's Mm -hmm. an experiential, spiritual experience. Yeah. There, there are certainly parallels between these kind of earlier, um, modes of American religious experimentation and the kind of experimentation you see today. Um, so while there is a kind of effort made to historicize, um, religious, uh, you know, the presentation of religion in America, it's only within theology or in uh, a cultural analysis. Uh, That is to say, there is little to no attention paid to the ways in which extenuating economic material circumstances are at root, you know, at the base of a lot of these developments. in, in religious uh, expression. She talks about the rise of consumerism 
um, and the way that uh, spiritual experimentation, self-fulfillment have been capitalized um, and turned into consumer experiences um, on goop.com, buying a membership to Equinox, um, you know, finding a subcultural identity through owning the movie prop quality reproduction lightsaber. Um, but what she doesn't do is point to why was there, <laughs> why did this surge in consumerism take place when it did? There is no mention of the failure of the Fordist mode of production and the necessity of America switching to a consumer-based economy after you know, the, the crisis of the 1970s that results in the institution of neoliberal policy. So if we were to ask um, Tara what, you know, why this, um, uh, in my opinion, pretty critical part of any analysis of spiritual expression, why is this missing? I don't know. I mean, she, she would maybe say that this is a book about religion and spirituality. It's not really a book about economics. Um, but in my opinion, you, you, you can't separate those. Yeah. The, the history of religion is it's, it's state sanctioned it's state backed. It helps maintain, it's an early, uh, ancient technology for maintaining social order, um, which is different from faith and it's different from spirituality. So, uh, you know, in some senses, I think religions also help to serve, just manage like the entropy of existence here. So, I mean, that's another um, aspect. So in her history of uh, previous modes of religious expression in American history, she points to the post-war period um, of Dwight Eisenhower, of uh, Johnson's Great Society, of this kind of accepting uh, liberal Protestantism um, that was socially minded for its day as the kind of last, you know, unifying uh, religious experience in American history or, or a moment when there was kind of more Majority. national unity. Yeah. Um, she makes no mention of the importance of that religious identity uh, in contrasting America with the godless Soviet Union. Um, she neglects to mention how uh, Christianity was instrumentalized by the state to, you know, yeah, to, to contrast um, against the Soviets. So time and again, there, there these limitations of her analysis um, really come into pretty sharp relief. I don't. I don't know. How, yeah, how much analysis there is. I feel like it's a lot of presentation of mm -hmm. research. I mean, there are some beautiful anecdotes. There's a, a story of uh, a New York social worker who was a self-described lax Jew, married a queer man whose primary spiritual interest was in the occult. The guy dies. She feels uncomfortable about the kind of service they're supposed to have because I guess they were also born again Christian. Her husband's family, they were born-again Christians, right? But the way she described what happened after, they had some sort of eclectic ceremony. Uh, it sounds very millennial and that uh, it incorporated everything from the Jewish mourners, Kaddish, to the theme song from The Legend of Zelda. Um, and when she, this is what I, I thought was, was poignant. When she struggled with mourning in the months after his death, Iris found comfort in a perhaps unlikely institution, the same gamer culture 
She and her husband had often played a game called Destiny together. She hadn't particularly enjoyed it, but she'd liked spending time with him. But when its sequel came out after his death, Iris found that connecting with other Destiny 2 players helped her make sense of her grief. Months after her interview, she joyfully sent me a screenshot the moment she finished the game. And then it just moves on. I think there's so much... That, that, that passage of life is pregnant with meaning and experience. And we are getting really atomized into these categories of like, okay, these are faith practitioners. These are faith havers who don't practice. Mm-hmm. These are people who have been influenced by faith who no longer, I mean, it's that. It's that rigid right. in its structuring. Yeah. But right there, the real emergent spirituality is how this person is like handling the grief of their loved one through these activities that made them feel close to them. I mean, there's there's something in that experience. There certainly is a journey there. And, and to me, I would find myself hanging on these anecdotal stories where I feel the real analysis could be made. Well, those are certainly the strongest part of this book. Um, and I don't know if, if you can, I would say those passages are worth reading. You know, the, the chapter on Soul Cycle I've mentioned a couple times. It is a lot of fun. The chapter on polyamory is a lot of fun. Yeah, the specific examples some, yeah. I, I find rich and I would like to extrapolate those. Yeah, because the communities themselves are are very interesting social phenomena and deserve analysis. Um, so that is, those are definitely the strongest um, aspects um, of, of the work. Um, your mentioning of this, uh, this, bereaved widow turning to gaming, I, I think, uh, brings us into, um, the two factors, uh, that Tara identifies as driving, um, the religiously remixed, um, the effervescence, uh, effervescent efflorescence, uh, the developing, uh, you know, of, of many, niche subcultural identities um, that, that seem to line up with religious practice. Um, and some of these, I would say the two major um, drivers that she posits are the internet and consumer capitalism. Um, you know, as, as I, I mentioned, she doesn't really get into why this mode of capitalism comes about. Um, but I think uh, her bringing up the internet as a driver of, of this phenomenon uh, it is very, it, it's correct. Um, though exactly what she thinks the internet can bring about within these, um, within this space of, of spirituality and religion, I, I think is pretty limited. Uh, I think the extent of it is, is, uh, the more individualized mm-hmm. we become, I don't know, she doesn't really say why, but like the more atomized we become as people within the culture, um, the more willing we are to, to like mix and match ideas and practices um, of various religious identities because I think she sees it as a mode of the internet has put us in a place where we do our own research. You mix and match to make your narratives, therefore you do it with religion as well. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I, I, feel, I personally feel it's just an acceleration of a process that was already happening. It's always been happening, right? And, and she does mention some of the older syncretic faiths. I just found... It interesting that she called a, a Christian scholar who is like becoming is like also has a, Buddha, a deep Buddhist union of awareness leaning as an extreme example hmm. of syncretism, which I feel that's like one of the most common examples is to be a Christian who becomes a Buddhist who becomes a like it's yeah, just Christian a lifelong. Buddhism is a pretty well established yeah. so, syncretism. 
Yeah. Um, might, she, might be the biases and, of her own faith where she's coming from. Yeah. Or the yeah. perspective of said. Well, and we should try experience. to table um, and get back to yes. what exactly we think Tara's uh, faith is really all about. Um, but she does have this chapter about how uh, I think it was like chat rooms around Harry Potter um, was she she selects as a kind of early example of this formation of subculture lifestyle. Uh, religious practice, which all se- which seem to like, overlap too. Mm-hmm. These terms, like there's a huge difference between ideology and religious practice, but it feels interchangeable here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, in this kind of you know, in terms of the the way she describes this phenomenon, I don't really take any issue. I, I do think the internet has allowed for a lot of you know people with various like niche subcultural interest to find each other and find a community. Um, but I think, you know, she, she would say that these niche subcultural identities are more often than not centered around, uh, specific IP, um, that they don't really meet the, I don't know, criteria. The, the criteria of a, of a true, uh, fulfilling uh, religion. Which seems to be marked by transcendence. Like that's a part of the criteria of what a religion would be. Because I feel with the way it's been defined in the book, all of these things should be an example of a placeholder that's addressing a similar need. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's more that they're pointing to the same thing. They're all signifying something because there's these questions that I have this note here. It's like, um, how do we distinguish the people who profess beliefs from those who really believe? I don't think it matters. I think this kind of questioning, although I understand the cultural merit, is more for learning how to examine a populace from a distance or something like that, um, to market to it or to, like you've said earlier, categorize it. Because when it comes down to it, like busting someone else's chops or talking to them about what they believe, do they really believe it? Do I think you really believe it? Do I know that you believe that you really believe it? I don't know. That's, that sounds like very unchristian to me. Let's put it that way. Burton is very apt at identifying these these things that are like standing in for um, what religious practice may have. You know, the, the role that traditional religious practice played um, in a previous age, and I, I think it's very you know. Pointing out the the Harry Potter fan club online and showing how it kind of paved the way for a lot of other um, subcultural um, communities on the web, um, you know, I I think that is uh, it's an interesting anecdote. I don't know how representative it is of um, of the development of spiritual consciousness facilitated by um, internet networks. I mean, we know the the longing for network spirituality is having a, a renaissance or a you know a surge in popularity um, in the sort of net spaces we inhabit today, um, particularly among Gen Z. The very little uh, Burton has to say about Gen Z is that they are the least religious generation yet. Um, wrong, wrong. And again, wrong, she wrong. she points to a poll that says, "Oh well." 30%, 34% of Gen Z respondents identified as atheist. Um, but I can't wait to read the Tradcath book in four years. I mean, when you're doing <laughs> cultural analysis 
relying on these polls that force people into these very, you know, binary static answers. That's not how people's spiritual life works. You're right. That's, that is not how those things work. Um, I think there's often a mistake of ritual and whenever ritual is recognized, then it might fall into the religious category here. And like, is there a ritual with like the Harry Potter fandom? I suppose. But to me, I think we're conflating lore with religion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe telling someone how the Bible ends is not going to elicit the same responses as when the, okay. Uh, I'm going to pull the curtain back here. Haven't really read that much Harry Potter, guys. Sorry. But I do recall when the last book had come out. When that Mm, reveal happened. Remember there's like people were driving by like Barnes and Nobles bookstores just screaming the end of the window. People were replying like, I'm going to murder your family. Mm -hmm. Like mothers with their children are like irate. I'm like, that doesn't happen when you tell someone how the fucking Old Testament ends. If you're if the big difference. If your (laughs) uh, story or your piece of literature if spoiling the ending like ruins its quality as a work, um, then I've got news for you. It's like a piece of shit <laughs> uh, book or film or or whatever. You know, the, sorry. The best pieces of literature. It's like you you've al- you've always known how it ends, but you know that's not the point. But that it's maybe like di- diverging a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's the journey. But yeah, I, I mean, it is. I, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I think working with a, a concept as difficult to define as religion or spirituality um, certainly makes this book a pretty hard one to write. There's a lot of new terminology in this book, which I, I understand there's probably a need for it. There's lots of acronyms, but I think it, it could have been worthwhile to go deeper on religion versus spirituality versus ideology versus faith versus practice. I, I find there's more of a focus on, on, again, finding the ritual. You know, by this very specific definition of kind of uh, a religious practice in a society, um, then a lot of things slot in and, and fill, you know, stand up to that definition of religion. Maybe it's um, a requirement of, of writing a book like this. Um, football fans, that kind of ritual of, you know, watching your team, um having the kind of ritual disavowal of the other and exalting the success of, of your team mirrors a lot of um, aspects of traditional religious ritual. But it doesn't necessarily bring with it a cosmology or a kind of worldview. Maybe there's something of an ethics uh, for the sports fan. Um, but it's very easy to see how you know the, the online Harry Potter fan club can fulfill some of these elements of a religion, um, how, um, you know, soul cycle, um, well, soul cycle might be a slightly better example. Um, and I think another kind of tricky part of this book is that some of the phenomena that, uh, burden identifies, uh, seem to, to kind of line up with multiple definitions of religion better than others. In a place where we're raised to think of ourselves both as capitalist consumers and as content creators, it makes sense to have these atomized faiths going on. It makes sense that in the neoliberal world, not just because of the internet, but in a world where all technologies and all tools are shaped by the dominant uh, hierarchy. um, I think a big part of it is 
I have, I have such problems with some, I'll be real, there's some chapters of this book, like I, there's so much missing. I understand it's a Times bestseller. I just got to get it out there. I get it. It's broad. It really feels like this has to speak to like think tanks, mm. corporations trying to market. Yeah. I feel that I'm not the audience for this. Yes. And maybe there's I very much, yeah, the typical, as well. mm. I'm trying to imagine who is not in those two categories who's reading this. And it's probably just someone who is, I imagine has a routine, has a life, has a job, maybe has a family, and they maybe felt things got a little crazy during the Trump administration. It been and this is was like a reach for a, a breath a breath of fresh air or something like that, a way to kind of get a grasp on things if we can label these things, right? Control, yeah. Control. Yeah, and um, we should mention that um, she does lay out um, a critique of the what she terms the new atavists, um, this kind of tendency on the right represented by Bronze Age pervert. Um, I think she lumps in Curtis Yarvin. Um, Again, because she is wedded to these categorizations, she ends up putting people together into the same box that maybe don't um, belong there so much. Um, But... To, to get back to what you were saying about um, neoliberalism, uh, and I think she does make this point broadly that um, our contemporary moment is very much focused on developing the self, of maximizing um, the interests of the individual, um, but also of, you know, among those interests being making religious meaning. Um, although increasingly this meaning is constituted by a, a very um, individualistic, um, you know, mode of experience, and, and it's it's simulated. A lot yeah. of these are virtually simulated. Like there's a couple in the book. They're super fans of Sleep No More. They spend seventeen thousand dollars just going to Sleep No More over and over and over and over again. And if we looked at it from uh, materialist, and if we're looking at it through a neoliberal lens, we can see what's happening here. There is a bit of a main character syndrome being played mm-hmm. out here. Maybe our lives, like I said, are what they are, and they have routines. So we are. are it, I mean, it, it, here it says they did. They didn't go out. They didn't go anywhere else. They didn't go to the movies. They spent seventeen thousand dollars on going to sleep no more. And I think there's just at the end, the guy says, uh, "But it was fine. It was a couple of years, and every time I came out at the end of the maze into that beautiful red light." <laughs> I think about the Tibetan Book of the Dead when I think of the Red Line, mm-hmm. by the way. I, I break into the biggest smile. It feels like I've come home. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I, I have a different point of view, but if I'm looking at something that I'm spending like $17,000 on, not in one lump sum, but like repetitively as it accrues, I might critically interrogate what it is that I'm doing. Well, I think that the main character syndrome um, you, you point out is key. Um, and Tara is a Christian. Um, she doesn't expressly identify which denomination of Christianity she, she subscribes to. Um, but she does key in, uh, to her credit on this elevation of the self of the individual self. And I think sleep no more being an interactive experience is very key to this. I mean, it reminds me a lot of like an old, many old Philip K. Dick stories, like in the future, uh, near near future scenarios where everyone has like a. I think I've mentioned this before, but they have like a God box in their home, and they you put your hand in the God box in the morning, and it brings you 
to deep into your mind, there's a projection of you basically living through Christ's suffering. And it's mm-hmm. fast. Like a second passes while you're in here though, days passed, and then you go to your life. And it, that is your experience. And it's been flattened into something that in the temporal world, it takes one second, even though you're in there for days. So guess what? You have more time to work mm-hmm. and to be productive. Yeah. And oh, it, that's so... that parallels so perfectly like the microdose in in the tech world right it's like yes have a have a transcended experience of total unitive consciousness to so that you're a better worker exactly yeah and that's that to me that's what all this kind and I think going to sleep no more and spending seventeen thousand dollars a year is is a symptomatic of the same thing so I imagine there are some keen um Marketing, some people somewhere looking at this and wondering how this can be flattened back into a religious nonprofit structure. And I wouldn't be surprised if more experiential churches pop up. I mean, there's churches of dance now. There's there's all these kinds of things. Yeah, it, and- it, it might go beyond these comparisons. Like, oh, the, the gym is like a church. It just will be. I mean, it's being. Ar- yeah. I think it's being articulated. It's being it's being choked about in popular media. Well, I mean, Soul Cycle has the candles. They have. The structuring of the dais, the raised dais, where the the you know the elevated instructor sits and and everyone faces them, um, so it already engages in a lot of the the trappings of religion. I mean, yoga kind of goes without saying it is appropriating, um, you know, various muddled um, and and mixed up Hindu um, religious practices and um, but. So one thing, I mean, it's not exactly religious, but it seems to line up with this um, emphasis on 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 being the main character, on um, creating a kind of um, a self. Um, I would highly recommend for anyone who hasn't yet watched it uh, to subscribe to Brad Trammell's Patreon to watch the selfie report um, in which he uh, dives into the rise of the selfie museum. Um the museum experience uh, is mm, parallel. I mean, it, it is certainly distinct from the experience um, of a traditional religious practice. But we're also um, seeing the rise of experiential exhibits and museums exactly, as well yeah. because it's not enough to just be the space to go mm-hmm. and take selfies to try to make some semblance of meaning out of what the hell you're yeah. doing there once a well, year. Well, it's certainly not a place to go and be edified right. um, by artists asking challenging questions oh, no, and no, presenting no, no. the space of reflection right. um, and, you know, awareness of, of the, I mean, obviously there are problems with the encyclopedic museum um, taking works from everywhere, you know, from Egypt and Greece and all that. But the idea of the museum as a kind of space for reflection um, and inner development it is totally gone. I mean, it has been for years, but and the, even the when experiential the med- aspect yeah. mm-hmm. to this, I feel like that adds uh, the main character syndrome that's missing from this whole thing. You know, yeah. at the museum, people are wandering around. It's like someone might do an, an audio guided tour, but in this day and age, like attention spans, they, I don't, I don't really know how how strong of a pull that is versus the the thing where you're thrust into moving through the museum experience, in which you have to like do things on a checklist to like leave almost like merging an escape room. You know, it's the whole, yeah. Let's just go back to Chuck E. Cheese's and just keep it simple. I miss the ball pits. Let's just keep it real. It's just fucking, yeah. It's, it's too much. People of fucking Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you move from taking the selfie in front of starry night, um, to there being 
a recreation of Starry Night in the Van Gogh experience that you can literally sit in and take your selfie in. So you get to be inside the art, you know, because just taking your your picture in front of it is not enough. Barring comprehension or, or understanding, it's like you need to, and you can't own it. That's another aspect of this thing, right? You're raised as it's a consumer. It's all marketing material. Once you post it on Instagram, it's just marketing material. So Burton um, dedicates a chapter to to Harry Potter online communities. Um, she dedicates a chapter to Soul Cycle, the cult of self improvement and wellness. Um, she then moves on uh, to talk about witches and magic. Maybe it's the intersection with social media that makes the witchcraft thing um, the most troubling, uh, because it's all about using your witchcraft to develop, you know a TikTok following. Um, so everyone's sitting in their own rooms um, trying to instead text of, Vladimir Putin. Instead of actually taking uh, physical action. Yeah. Guys, okay, you know, vibes might be real, but uh, there are things, we, there are, at the, at the top of these ladders are human beings. Yeah. Not gods. So after the chapter on um, witches, the kind of contemporary occultism, um, she moves into a chapter on polyamory and other modes of sexual liberation of these subcultural identities um, that bring with them community, other aspects that you know traditionally apply to religious practice. This chapter has one of my uh, favorite pull quotes, um, and, and you know this is the the strong suit of the book. Definitely is um, is is pulling these quotes. Um, so this is from this is uh, from uh, a Silicon Valley polyamorists interview um, with with Wired magazine talking about the importance of exploring um, polyamory in the context of transhumanist life extension. <laughs> I cannot say that with a straight face. Um, quote: If life extension is possible, we might have to think about relationships differently. It's pretty hard to have an exclusive relationship with someone for 300 years. Um, yeah. Now, now, if we get to the point where we're able to sustain human life for 300 years, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I will um, start to think about polyamory. No, I mean, I, I, I don't really have any – I don't want to sit here and, and critique the, these modes of – you know, of liberatory uh, sexual exploration. Uh, I think they've done a lot of good for a lot of people. Um, this does, uh, this, this chapter does include um, some interesting notes uh, that I think point to why um, so many people have come to reject uh, tradi traditional institutions, uh, whether they be religious institutions or state institutions. Um, is that they have historically been uh, oppressive. They have been patriarchal and white. Um, and so I think to reject these institutions is very natural. Um, but again, there is not a mention of anyone uh, losing trust in institutions for the offshoring of labor in the, you know, in the 1980s, losing trust in institutions um, for failing to prevent 
all of the economic catastrophes of the last 30 years. Um, so I don't know. A another example of how this book just scratches the surface, uh, you know, presents these critiques that are... Right. This is not advocating for yeah. anything outside of like a paradigm shift within capitalism so you become a better consumer. And if you're a better consumer, yeah. then... You need grace um, to, <laughs> to act in the common good and not consume and make the right choices. Um, and so again, it just betrays this lack of any material analysis of why people think the way they do. Well, her, her faith seems to involve transcendence, first of all. Definitely. Right. Definitely. Instead of eminence, yeah. meaning it's here now, here now. in the present yep. moment. Um, yeah. It's this something is outside of us that we can reach to or reach into us when, and this is something I really don't like about any religion, is when we do the right things, we do the right stuff. Like it's, it's like punitive. It's, yeah. And it, it takes the, it, feel, it feels very neoliberal to take the, um, people and the tools that are conformed or molded to fit inside of an oppressive structure, inside of a neoliberal structure, and blame them. It's like saying you didn't recycle. That's why there's extreme weather and climate damage. It's yeah. it's it's it's, it's a right. And if you and if you don't do these things, it's like well, we won't talk about like you know the aircraft carrier. We won't talk about the cruise ships or whatever. It's your responsibility. It's. It's you need to clean up the environment. Which where did that, that came from? Like Gulf and all of their all of the all of the oil spills and all these kinds of things and the these campaigns that could just flip the paradigm. So in my mind, some of this does feel probably unintentionally like a paradigm flip, putting it back on the individual. And if you don't feel a connection with something outside of yourself, then you're never going to be fixed. And I, I really just have a problem with that. I really well, do. The so after the chapter on polyamory. She moves into three chapters that kind of each in turn discuss um, what she – now another kind of uh, – well, civil religion is not a new term. Um, but she terms these three civil religions that she sees as you know down the line kind of being the most important um, quasi-religious phenomena or um, you know ideologies or, or however you want to define it. Um, these three are – um, social justice, the social justice movement, um, techno-utopianism, and the new atavists. And all of these categories are almost too broad and too specific at the same time. Um, the only time she mentions Marxism in this book, uh, pretty much, there are three total mentions, I believe. Um, and two of them are defining social justice um, the social justice movement as essentially being the, um, the you know, kind of contemporary mode of Marxism, that, that this is the, you know, the inheritance of Marxism is, is how it kind of winds up in the social justice movement. Um, and then the only other uh, mention of the word Marxism in this book um, is when she's characterizing uh, people on the right's understanding of, you know, who we're under attack by. We're under attack by the cultural Marxists. Something that frustrates me so much about this book is that it is, it is an analysis of culture, pure and simple, divorced from any um, relation to a base. You know, I, I don't think she would, I don't know if the term superstructure, I mean, I'm sure she's familiar with the dichotomy between base and superstructure. Um, but um, and, and, you know, obviously the relationship between base and superstructure is not 
um, settled. You know, it is it has been a source of debate and continues to be one. Um, but social justice, um, the left's culture, as you know, as she kind of posits this, um, does have some of the hallmarks of you know a kind of millenarian uh, cult or some. You know, it it longs for a utopia that's free of oppression. Um, and kind of sees it as a necessity that it will inevitably come about. Um, she sees social justice as having a faith in the sacred nature of the world, and there's this kind of teleology embedded in social justice um, that its adherents um, treat as essentially a religious structure. So she's, she wants to note the the you know, the religious impulse in these three broad ways of thinking that she identifies. So, okay, so she she looks at the social justice warriors and says, you know, oh, you're this is just a new religion for you, that you you have a kind of faith um, in, in the world kind of be, being fulfilled. The next one um, she, she looks into is techno-utopianism, which itself is a, you know, she, she puts together Peter Thiel, um, as uh, right alongside um, the you know uh, proponents of the Californian ideology, um, so that you know seems a very um, it's a categorization that I, you know I don't know how much it really means in practice. I, I mean, I guess generally um, for uh, Burton's purposes, the the techno utopians are ones who by you know having faith in man's intellect or humanity's intellect, um, they see as a kind of salvation or, or better world um, coming about, you know, in this life, not in the hereafter, um, through the introduction of various, whether it's life extension technology, um, uh, you know, uh, colonizing the stars or what have you. Um, but she critiques their locating of the sacred in uh, the world. And then the third um, quasi-religious structure um, and, and final uh, phenomenon, social phenomenon that she, she spends a chapter dealing with uh, are those that she dubs the new atavists. And so these would be people like Bronze Age pervert. I don't think she mentions soul bra. But he would be in there, you know, it, it's people who kind of, uh, you know, it's the re returners with a return with a V. You know, it, it's those people who who see um, human fitness hardwired into DNA. Um, I mean, she also can like puts someone who shoots up a church next to um, like a like a, what, a poor white guy next to BAP, next to Bronze Age pervert or Curtis Yarvin feels like a. A gross generalization. There is a, a very broad and vague extent to which, okay, these people all kind of exhibit the reactionary desire to make the past in the present. It's a, cyclical, which, it's a very cyclical view of history. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, maybe maybe a Kelly Hugo wasn't yeah. trending yet, but like obviously it's been it's been in the the, the sphere for ever. Yeah, and and, I, I, and that idea that like it's it's coming around, which you know, I just no, I I think you can critique the impossibility of the desire to instantiate the past in the present. Um, 
but you know, so th- so this is the kind of third uh, or the final of these three civil religions that um, Burden identifies, um, and then you know the the last concluding chapter is kind of um, elaborating the you know kind of drawing up loose ends, um, reminding us of of the various um, social phenomena that she's explored, um, but then positing the three civil religions, um, those being social justice, uh, the new atavism, this kind of racist reactionary tendency, um, and techno-utopianism as the kind of three competing civil religions or civil, you know, ideologies that will come to, to dominate. Um, and she contrasts all of them as having in common, uh, she contrasts all of them with uh, you know, what I believe is her conception of religion. She makes use of, uh, of an argument from University of San Diego professor Stephen Smith. He characterizes two kinds of religious belief in the West, um, that uh, which he calls paganism, which is characterized by a faith that, quote, locates the sacred within this world. That is contrasted with Judaism and Christianity, um, that sees uh, the sacred salvation, the source of morality, as being in the hereafter, as being outside of the world. Um, and so there, there is a kind of value judgment there, certainly. Um, and so that kind of, you know, that's, that's where the book uh, leaves off. It, it shows you these kind of three uh, dominant, uh, according to her, these three dominant tendencies and says, you know, only time will tell essentially which of these three ideologies will win out in the end. Obviously there is a lot to critique in the almost faith-based adherence to the social justice movement. If it's even possible to kind of generalize in those broad strokes. So I I do agree to an extent with um, burdens and, you know, analysis or um, positing of social justice as this thing that kind of mirrors a a religious structure in some sense. Okay, sure. But what is not given any attention in this book and frustrates me to no end is the potential for changing material circumstances themselves to generate a new sort of religious consciousness. You know, it's not as though people's decision, people's deciding between these three ideologies that she identifies, you know, ooh, do I want to be, do I want to be a racist right-wing bodybuilder and eat a lot of raw eggs? Or do I want to, you know, hex the patriarchy? Or do I want to um, become a tech billionaire and inject myself with, you know, with uh, a teenage boy's blood? It's not as though people are, you know, deciding between these faiths and and one of them will win out. You know, there are factors beyond, you know, other than cultural that are determining um, which of these or if any or none of these will end up dominating. Um, And in terms of a kind of, yes, I I agree that there, there are a lot of practices, you know, that 
that we don't it's not as though we live in a in a totally secular age there there are all these practices that line up uh with you know with contemporary or have parallels to to religious and spiritual practice you know the rave can be a space of of spirituality you know um i i don't think it's i don't think it it's necessarily a bad thing that um that exercise you know for some people can be a, a space that allows for the sort of reflection um, that previous religious, um, you know, that, that religion gave the space for. I mean, without these other social institutions, there is a, a deeply felt need for, you could call it transcendence. Um, I think it's like escaping the body, escaping the self, escaping the, the, the entirety of your existence. And I think that's, I mean, and that's very impo- important. Yeah. I mean, without those I mean, it's a double-edged sword, though. Without those those pressure valve releases, people probably couldn't keep going to work, mm-hmm. right? But with those releases is what allows the material conditions to remain unchanged, for the most part, for for most people, or for or for capital to be consolidated upstream. It's not. Uh, so then, there's more of a need for the transcendent, and the transcendent has to become faster, like the God box, right? Because we need to keep working. I mean, it's kind of why, like, we yeah. this a whole other episode, but I think ketamine is a perfect neoliberal drug. There's no mm. hangover. People just get into K-holes all night, go to the rave, escape the body, wake up, no hangover, go to work in the morning. You don't even know something's wrong until two years later you're, you're pissing yourself all the time because your bladder has been... Yeah, you get some kidney stones or whatever. Oh, okay. Something like yeah. that. I think, I think, right. I think it's... No, you're right. Yeah. There's something crystallizes in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I do agree with um, Burton's critique, you know, that I, I, I think that trying to, uh, because so much of this, of this, um, impulse, whether it's, um, an impulse to join with a political collectivity or to, um, dissolve the ego and enter into a kind of unitive consciousness. Return to the womb. Yeah. Return to the womb, get rid of all different. Plato's cave. Yeah. No. And to, (laughs) to achieve, you know, to, to put down the ego, um, you're, it's, it's like drinking seawater. If you think you're going to get that out of a lot of these practices that are just about reifying the self and reifying the ego. I mean, maybe, you know, you could go to soul cycle and have a transcendent experience and not, you know, not have anything, not have your ego come up once there. Um, but I, I don't think that is, you know. I think I'd rather walk on burning coals. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a bed of nails. Yeah, it seems, it seems yeah, transcendent. yeah, it's got to be. It's yeah. got to be fun. It's got to yeah. be better than, than soul stuff. After but, the pain, yeah. you're, just, you're just gone, you know? No, so I, I do agree that that there is going to be this, you know, if people are trying to to get their spiritual and community fulfillment out of out of Star Wars, Sp- spiritual you know, out commun- of spiritual fulfillment, communal fulfillment, communal fulfill- mm-hmm. uh, mental health needs. Uh, yeah, maybe you get some of those it's, from it's buying the, but Baby Yoda. I don't know if, box, you, if but, you get them, but I think mm-hmm. that that's the gauntlet of what's trying to be yeah. addressed. It's just never unpacked. It's just never separated. Something we've, you know, I've come back to a lot is that I don't disagree with a lot of the basic critique that uh, Burton levels at, at a lot of these, you know, and she's, social she's practices. And she has a good working history of like how spirituality unfolded in America. Yeah. Um, even yeah. it goes into like transcendentalists being anti-institutional. No, I think you have, you have, 
Joseph Smith, um, you know, uh, starting Mormonism. There's a through line there to L. Ron Hubbard um, that I think you can trace. And, and this, you know, this tendency does seem to to continue to persist in America. Um, but I think my biggest point of contention is that what is Tara Burton's proposed alternative? I mentioned earlier that we were going to maybe try to come back to our thoughts on mm. on on uh, Tara's. Let's say rest in uh, power, Elron. Rest in power. <laughs> yeah, rest in power, Elron. You tried, Seriously. man. You really tried. This is a pro Elron Hubbard podcast. Yeah. No, scratch that. New media venture. Right. We are yes. not a podcast. Yes. Um, we're not taking money from the Church of Scientology yet. Yet. Um, but so that uh, this distinction between uh, pagan religious uh, religious sensibilities and Judaism and Christianity as laid out by Stephen Smith, professor at San Diego University, um, contrasting these civil religions of techno-utopianism, social justice, and reactionary right-wingers versus the good Christianity and Judaism that locate the sacred outside of, um, of the world. It seemed to me, and this is, you know, um, we, Tara has, um, has identified, um, publicly as a Christian. Um, I have not been able to find which denomination she chooses to identify with, but I think she is kind of implicitly positing this belief in morality, salvation, the sacred being located outside of the world um, in some kind of transcendence. It seems that she is positing that as as the superior option. And if 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 it's the sacred is outside of the world, it's outside of the self. And what's miss? I think what's funny about all of this is that if. what's missing from quote making me whole is outside of me then of course you're going to keep reaching for low the lower hanging fruit of course i'm going to keep buying baby yoda plushed dolls and spending seventeen thousand dollars and sleep no more and going to disneyland and whatever because it's outside because we've we've hardwired transcendence into being beyond you but that reifies literally all of the problems that are laid out in the book i think especially when it comes to quote bad consumerism because good consumerism is what you know what i mean (laughs) exactly yeah yeah, I mean, th- there is really no attention paid to the historical development of capitalism, the how it's, you know, how it's had to adopt consumerism um, because of the profitability crisis of the previous modes of production. You know, there is no attention paid to that. But I, I wonder if, in such a solipsistic culture, that, you know, maybe not consciously and to greater and lesser degrees among, you know. Um, specific people, I'm sure, you know, this does not include any of our listeners. But if you understand the world as fundamentally, you know, as yourself being the only thing in the world that really counts, um, if you desire to get outside yourself, you know, the only place that that can be is outside of the world. It ha- it has to be transcendent. So we should um, give Jeff Bezos the $10 billion that's going through Congress right now to go to space? Is that Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, outside make, of the world. Make, yeah, space. make Bezos a, he's, he's a right. space... Uh, space uh, God uh, imperator priest um, yeah who can be the transcendent you know the ground of transcendence outside the world yeah no but um, it's like stranger in a strange land oh, fucking God, God um, but yeah I mean if if you can't understand the the way in which the social the the socius you know the kind of unit of sociality 
as collectivity uh, of communion with your fellow human as being another way to escape the ego, to put down um, one's individual concerns into um, a community of believers or a community, you know, um, then I think you have to, it, it has to be transcendent. Um, Seekers probably were overbelievers, I think. In this day and mm-hmm. age, most people mm-hmm. are seeking something. Yeah, we don't have a, we don't have a lot of believers anymore. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't think Tara would see the possibility of community perhaps forged by, you know, uh, collective action in the workplace. I mean, that's probably, that's a pipe dream. And I, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, uh, expecting the, uh, the revolution to come anytime soon. Um, but I, and maybe it's... Oh, you're anti-union? Is that what you're saying over here? Maybe, maybe oh. You know. <laughs> oh, he's anti-union, guys. Hey. I would, I would love um, for a union to be the ground of a, of a collectivity that could maybe fill that need. I, I don't know, you know, if that, if that turns into a religion, but I think there is a way, there's a possibility at least, in which collective action um, made necessary by the uh, ever-deteriorating material circumstances to generate the kind of community um, the kind of spiritual and human fulfillment that I think Tara would only really see as being possible um, by, by placing one's faith in a transcendent God. Derek and I, um, before this episode, we were watching an interview um, Tara was doing um, with some professors at Oxford University on uh, the, the common good these kind of high-minded questions about um, what defines good for society. And, you know, it, yeah, loving one's neighbor as oneself, um, it, it's pretty clear if you think about it, it's not hard to arrive at what the common good is. But to neglect, um, to factor in the extent that the economic circumstances of life are completely at odds um, with this common good, um, and to recognize the inability of most people to, you know, to surmount those obstacles. I mean, it, it's almost laughable. And I say almost because, um, Tara and her interlocutors have spent a lot of time in the academy and it is very easy for members of the academy, um, to have these kind of high minded theoretical discussions um, and then act as though, you know, oh, we've, we've solved it. We've determined what the common good is. So if, if individuals simply made the choice to, <laughs> to act, you know, to live in the example of Christ, um, then we'd really be getting somewhere. But, but why aren't they? Why aren't they? I mean, yeah, not, not, not only are we back to the problem of the, the, the monk or the ascetic or the artist on top of the mountain who brings the meaning down once every 10 years. Now we're at the ivory tower on top of the mountain and it's even further away. There's just less ability to relate. And I think it reinforces this whole like pre priest class, uh, uh, thing we've been articulating it. It's, uh, how many times in history 
have academics come up with a system to influence the working class, to change them. If they can't teach them, they will join them. If they can't join them, then they will you know, make harder boxes in which they have limited choices in which they will make the right decisions. They can't do those things, we just forget about them until we need like a voting block or something like that. So it's, it's uh, I don't know if it's that cynical here, but that what we watched felt uh, very detached. Yeah. Yeah, very, yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe these discussions of the common good are targeted at, um, oh, the the Warren Buffetts of the world, um, the, you know, like. the, the foundation heads that, um, the philanthropists, you know. The Rand Corp. Um, we, oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're in there too, <laughs> sure. definitely. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're aiming at influencing people with money to like, oh, you know, you need to be better philanthropists, uh, Okay. Yeah. So I could maybe see that as, you know, uh, the audience for this is the people who, if they have a, a slight change of heart, then maybe, but, but I'm imagining this trickling down to like a subway ad campaign in which they're like selling me like a subscription thing that could be a toothbrush or a vibrator. It's mm -hmm. very unclear to me. And it yes. says for the common good. Yes. Yeah. That's how this gets busting a nut yeah. is is for the common good. It's, right, it's but, the, but, but but that's how this research. I feel like PhD uh, level of stuff, which is wonderful, although its own niche. That there are other directions you're just not looking in, and I I do feel that is how a lot of I mean potentially being, being breakthroughs or something these next generations of thought are actually received mm. because there already is a concurrent idea in culture that it's only through marketing and through product in which new ideas can be disseminated. And it's usually experiential, right? Mm -hmm. It's the thing. It's not just enough to come out with a new ice cream brand. I just made the museum of ice cream or the museum of air conditioners, which is just like an experiential escape room that ends in you learning that my air conditioner is the most superior one. I mean, I, I wish I was making this shit up. So there's, there is some like accelerated mm -hmm. convergence here of all of these Things. She has correctly articulated that experiential is part of it. I would say it's the crux. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, she needs to spend a little more time on Discord. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's hit her up and get her record. Thank you for listening to Pneumatic Materials.